Hello, everyone around the world. Welcome to our special event on micronutrients in emergencies. How can we prevent an increase in hidden hunger? We are delighted to co-organize this event together with the Micronutrient Forum. And let me begin by expressing our special thanks to Ainsley Morris of the Micronutrient Forum for excellent collaboration for organizing this event. I'm Rajal Pandya-Loach, Director of Communications and Public Affairs at IFPRI. Thank you for joining this special event, and thank you to those of you who are watching this recording after the event. We are eager to hear from you and to participate in the Q&A session that will follow the brief presentations. Please do submit your questions using the chat box on ifpre.org or post your questions via Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter by using the hashtag AskIFPRI. We have an exciting program lined up for you. And without further ado, I'd like to call upon John McDermott, Director of the CGIR Research Program on Agriculture for Nutrition and Health, A4NH, for his opening remarks. John, over to you. Uh, thank you, Rajul, and welcome, everyone. Um, improving nutrition has been a major focus of the development community for the past decade or so. And there's been a lot of large scale initiatives at international and regional level, but I think we should pay particular attention to the work that's been done at national and local levels. There's been a lot of country ownership and leadership around improving nutrition. And that progress in nutrition has shown increased ambition over time and trying to tackle all forms of malnutrition. Um, and that has had kind of mixed success. We've seen improvements in reductions of stunting, but still persisting. Uh, we've had, and we're pretty good at reducing micronutrients, which is the focus of this uh, discussion. Um, and, and when we can, we have good solutions for that. Um, but we're also encountering an increasing trend in obesity and, and associated NCDs. So with this increased ambition for nutrition, I think there's been a lot of increased sophistication on how we do things. So from the kind of public program side, we're good at combining nutrition-specific health actions with nutrition-sensitive actions across multiple sectors, whether it's food, social programs, education, water, or whatever, to leverage gains. Um, and increasingly, we're looking at interventions in food systems where healthier diets are, are a balancing factor to kind of get us both under nutrition and over nutrition and how those are put together um, in a healthier and more nutritious way. Um, now, micronutrient deficiency is the most prevalent of form of malnutrition. And there's a variety of tested solutions for how to do that. And you'll hear about many of them in this seminar from supplementation, fortification, biofortification, and increasingly diet diversification, improved diet quality and healthier diets, as I mentioned. And these are successfully done in many places. And we've seen, a, I think, a good trajectory of improvement over time. But like many development outcomes where we have been improving over the past decade, COVID has really disrupted progress. Um, and despite all our best efforts, I think it's inevitable that there'll be some reduction, some problems with micronutrient deficiencies uh, as we move forward. 
Um, and why is this happening? Well, I think unlike other shocks that we've seen, standard economic shocks, this is a profound disruption. So it's disrupted incomes and livelihoods, but it's also disrupted public programs um, of all types and health systems. And one thing we're just coming to grips now is how much it's disrupting food systems and demonstrating the fragility of food systems, many of which we didn't appreciate. So while there'll be some reversal of progress, it's urgent that we actually try and mitigate those losses and build back in future. So our speakers today will focus on um, how we can look at responses during the emergency period now to prop up successes in getting micronutrients consumed by people. And then how do we lay the seeds for getting back on an upward trajectory of improvement in the recovery and resilience phases that will follow. So I look forward to the discussion and hand back to uh, Rajul for the, for, uh, for the next step. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Thank you for setting the stage for our session. And let me now call on our first speaker, Saskia Osendarp. Saskia is the Executive Director of the Micronutrient Forum. Saskia, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Rajil, and good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Um, as was said already by John, the COVID-19 crisis is a threat for uh, global hunger and all forms of malnutrition. And in this presentation, I would like to briefly illustrate how COVID crisis uh, is affecting micronutrient malnutrition or hidden hunger. Next slide, please. And I will do so with uh, this framework that uh, was developed, the conceptual framework that was developed by the uh, Standing Together for Nutrition Consortium um, that shows how COVID-19 impacts all forms of malnutrition. And the COVID crisis is unique in that it is a combination actually of two, of three different crises. An economic crisis that causes incomes to fall and food prices to increase. A food systems crisis that affects the availability of products, food products uh, in retail and markets. Uh, it interrupts food supply and premix supply chains and it affects food demand. And a health systems crisis that affects the delivery of health and nutrition services and health and nutrition supplies through, um, through the health system. Uh, and as such, we expect uh, hunger and food insecurity to increase this year, such that the World Food Programme recently uh, projected that the number of people facing acute food insecurity will increase this year from 135 million at the beginning of, uh, of the year to uh, almost double that, that amount, 265 million at the end of 2020. But also the access to nutritious foods will re be reduced, poverty and inequity will increase, and the coverage of nutrition-specific interventions through the health system will be reduced. And all of this will impact diet quality and illnesses and health, which are the two main drivers of all forms of malnutrition. Next slide, please. So the economic crisis is impacting micronutrient malnutrition um, because we know that micronutrient malnutrition is strongly correlated with GDP per capita. This uh, graph shows that the countries that have the highest GDP per capita uh, tend to have the lowest prevalence of micronutrient malnutrition. And current projections by the World, um, by the World Bank and by IMF predict a 10% of global GDP decline during COVID-19 during the, for this year, 
on average with variations, of course, between countries. Next slide. We also know that during an economic crisis, an increase in micronutrient malnutrition is expected first before weight loss because households sacrifice their dietary diversity first. And this is um, a graph from the 2007-2008 financial crisis in Indonesia that shows that at the beginning of the crisis, households use coping mechanisms and they change uh, to cheaper and lower quality foods that will go at the expense of their micronutrients body stores. And then when the crisis continues, we see a deterioration of household food security and also caloric intakes are being affected when the crisis continues. Next slide. Now the food systems crisis is thought to affect particularly the availability of nutritious foods. Next slide, please. Um, and nutritious foods are animal source products and fruits and vegetables and dairy products. And the production of these foods is more labor intensive and therefore also more impacted by social distancing when laborers cannot travel to the field for harvest or to the factories. In addition, these foods are more susceptible to perishing and food wastes when markets are disrupted. And these foods are more expensive and we have seen that they are then the first to be dropped from the household menu when incomes fall. Now there's recent monitoring data that has been published by IFPRI on how these, uh, the consumption of these foods is affected in some urban areas in low and middle income countries. This is data from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia that shows that the, the consumption of dairy products is significantly reduced during the months of the lockdown in May as compared to pre-COVID January, February of this year in almost all income quintiles except for the highest income quintile. The next slide, please. And then we have the health uh, systems crisis that also affects the delivery of micronutrient interventions during COVID-19. GAFA, the Global Alliance for Vitamin A, uh, issued a guidance at the beginning of the pandemic to suspend all the high-dose vitamin A supplementation programs for preschool children until the safety of the health workers could be uh, ensured. And programs, antenatal care programs that deliver micronutrient supplements, such as multiple micronutrient supplements to pregnant women, uh, the coverage is being affected, as well as programs that distribute multiple um, micronutrient powders to young children. And we have data now from UNICEF uh, on report reported reductions in some of the nutrition service cover uh, coverage of some of the nutrition service programs in selected countries. And they show that for in, um, nutrition services such as breastfeeding counseling, vitamin A supplementation and school feeding, some countries report reductions in coverage of 75 to 100% during the lockdown phase of the, of the pandemic. Now, in addition, large school food fortification programs are affected as well. The premix availability uh, suffers from international supply chain disruptions and lockdowns affects the transportation of premixes to the millers and of fortified foods to the markets. Next slide, please. So what can we do um, uh, and what can we recommend to countries to address hidden hunger during this crisis? And that will be the topic, obviously, of this presentation and of the next presenters. We know that there are a number of cost-effective programs and interventions that work and that should be scaled up. And these include the promotion of healthy, diverse diets, the promotion of breastfeeding, biofortification, large-scale food fortification, vitamin A supplementation, and mater maternal multiple micronutrient supplementation. Countries should also invest in integrated, innovative food systems approaches that address all forms of malnutrition, price policies, cash vouchers, 
social protection programs, but also interventions that have shown to improve micronutrient intakes in young children, such as eggs. And then finally, countries and organizations should monitor the impacts of these interventions to further build the evidence base and fine tune the recommendations. Next slide. And that brings me to this initiative because to better respond to this crisis, the global nutrition, health and food systems community have come together and joined forces um, to connect and build evidence for nutrition action in the context of COVID-19. And we hope you will join this collective effort and sign the call to action that's been uh, published on the web now. And with this, I would like to end the presentation and hand back to you, Rajul. Thank you. Thank you, Saskia. Thank you for the presentation and for the recommendations and for the call to action. Our next speaker is Dan Gilligan. Dan is the Deputy Director of the Poverty, Health and Nutrition Division at DIFPRI. Dan, we look forward to your remarks. Hi, Rajul. Thank you. Hello, everyone. As Saskia just described, emergencies like the COVID-19 pandemic can reduce diet quality and exacerbate micronutrient deficiencies through several channels. So although it's a health shock of enormous scale in many low and middle income countries, the economic decline due to interrupted commerce and social distancing orders and lockdowns is creating more hardship than the health risks directly. In an ongoing COVID-19 surveillance survey that IFPRI is conducting by phone in Ethiopia, the top two negative effects of the pandemic that are reported by respondents are income loss and food shortages. So as in the financial crisis of 1998, uh, households experiencing steep income losses will shift to cheaper calorie dense diets and away from more nutritious, but more expensive and uh, foods such as fruits and vegetables and animal source foods. So COVID-19 and related restrictions are also disrupting transportation and production of perishable nutritious foods like fruits and vegetables. Uh, thereby increasing their prices. Also, healthy, rich, uh, healthy diets that are rich in vitamins and minerals, such as zinc, iron, and vitamin A, support a strong immune system, which helps our bodies to fight viral infections. Thus, reducing hidden hunger helps to counter the effects of the pandemic directly. So what programs can be effective at improving diets and protecting against micronutrient deficiencies during the pandemic? For several reasons, social safety nets provide a very good answer, particularly if they're designed to be nutrition sensitive. Indeed, this approach is widely followed. Ugo Gentilini of the World Bank estimates that 190 countries have implemented, adapted, or planned over 900 social protection measures during the COVID-19 crisis, often in the form of cash transfers, and, and in many cases, explicitly to improve uh, food security and diet quality. Next slide, please. So why use social safety nets to protect micronutrient status during a health crisis? Well, one reason is that increasing incomes for vulnerable households improves dietary diversity as demand for nutritious foods rise with income. Transfers can also reduce negative coping strategies like distressed livestock asset sales, that are often disproportionately undertaken by women in the early days of an economic shock. By protecting these livestock assets, transfers directly improve availability of animal source foods. A second reason is to, re to rely on safety nets is that the infrastructure of social assistance is often already in place. Every country in Africa has at least one social assistance program, and many have very large programs, in some cases, large national programs. Through these programs, it's possible to expand benefits for the poor or to rely on their targeting schemes to identify other newly vulnerable households. 
A third reason is that um, two decades of extensive rigorous research on social safety net programs has documented their effectiveness at protecting food security and assets and improving diets. A meta-analysis of social protection programs conducted by my, my colleagues here at IFPRI and at Cornell found that on average transfer programs increased the value of food consumed by 13% and cal caloric acquisition by 8%, signaling that the transfers had actually improved diet quality. Next slide, please. So I'd like to share another example from research about a nutrition-sensitive social safety net program. It was operated among um, IDP camp or internally displaced people's camp residents during an insurgency in Northern Uganda in 2007. We worked then with World Food Program to conduct a cluster randomized controlled trial to test the effectiveness of micronutrient fortified meals provided at school compared to a take home ration of equivalent composition on anemia prevalence. We found that the fortified school feeding program was highly effective at protect protecting against anemia for vulnerable groups. The program reduced the prevalence of moderate to severe anemia for adolescent girls aged 10 to 13 years in primary school by 18 percentage points. As you see in the figure, anemia prevalence fell among either school feeding or the take-home rations groups. And the first group on the left is actually the pooled, uh, both FFE programs, both food for education programs. And you see that their anemia prevalence fell among those groups during the study while at the same time, anemia prevalence increased dramatically in the control group. So under those conditions, anemia was getting much worse and the school feeding program was shown to be protected. Um, similarly, anemia prevalence of adult women in the same households actually fell by 12 percentage points when they received take home rations. So those rations were shared and anemia prevalence of children uh, aged six to 59 months fell by 22 percentage points when fortified school field meals were offered, in part because those young children sometimes accompanied their big sisters and big brothers to school. Next slide, please. <clears throat> so in social safety net programs, when do transfer modalities matter for improving diet quality? A study by colleagues at IFPRI and UNC in Ecuador experimented with three transfer modalities of food, food vouchers, or cash transfers. The study found that all three modalities increased household consumption and improved calorie intakes. However, vouchers increased dietary diversity more than food transfers or cash because the vouchers made more nutritious foods available than the food rations. And in this case, the vouchers helped assure that more of the transfer was spent on nutritious foods, say than cash. So while vouchers worked well here, in general, we find that cash transfers often work best because they connect beneficiaries to markets they're cheaper to deliver, and they can be sent electronically when possible. However, regardless of the modality, moving swiftly is really critical um, when providing relief during emergencies, and that's no exception here for COVID-19. Next slide, please. So what are the priorities for designing social safety nets to improve micronutrient status during the pandemic? I'll mention uh, three principles, though there are some important details on how these approaches are carried out. So one, design social safety nets to be gender sensitive. Most social assistance programs are not designed with the needs of women beneficiaries in mind. And this is a wasted opportunity that can widen gender inequality. Social protection programs designed to be gender sensitive during the pandemic have the potential to protect women's livelihoods and assets, to reduce unequal burden of care, improve women's empowerment, and reduce intimate partner violence. All of these can support improved caring practices and health outcomes for children. 
to include messaging on nutrition, sanitation, and health when possible. Research from Bangladesh shows that cash transfers plus nutrition behavior change improve diet quality and quantity and reduce child stunting. Approaches that combine cash plus nutrition behavior change work best. Three, cash transfers to safe, use cash transfers to safely support informal markets and supply chains for nutritious foods, um, including biofortified crops. Many vulnerable households access nutritious foods through markets. As markets and supply chains recover, providing cash transfers will help boost demand for nutritious foods for markets and could stimulate local value chains. Okay, thank you. Back to you, Rajul. Dan, thank you very much. And I'd like to remind our viewers that we will have a special session focused on social safety nets and COVID-19 on Thursday, June 11. So we'll have a chance to delve deeper into that. Before I call on our third speaker, I'd like to remind all of you that you can submit your questions in the chat box on ifpre.org or through Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter by using the hashtag AskIfpre. Please do go ahead and submit. Our third speaker is Panjani Kambula, who is the Global Program Lead for Food Fortification at GAIN. Panjani, we look forward to your remarks. Thank you. So thank you for the introduction, Raju. Uh, I will build on, on the various arguments that both Saskia and Dan made. You heard both of them make reference to the fact that, you know, during COVID-19 pandemic, the access and availability to nutritious foods has been limited. And that's because farmers are having problems to getting product to the market, but also, you know, because it's labor intensive and, and therefore people may be isolating and not being able to grow, you know, and, and supply readily available, you know, fresh foods. What's that, what's that doing is that people are defaulting to staple foods. Uh, so, you know, we're talking products, you know, like, you know, maize, uh, wheat or, or rice, which we know are very good sources of energy but not very good sources of, of micronutrients, if not fortified. So essentially what I'm going to talk about in my presentation is, is the impact that COVID-19 is having on food fortification program, which is essentially the addition of, you know, you know vitamins and minerals to staple foods or condiments uh, to address the micronutrient needs of the general population. Next slide, please. So, so the presentation is in two parts. The first part, part of the presentation looks at what are the issues that are impacting fortification programs. And I'll broad, broadly categorize those into three. You know, there's issues around supply chains, there are economic factors, but there's also government policies or reaction uh, to, to what's happening. And then secondly, what I wanna try and do is to say, you know, given these issues, what is it that countries and programs should be doing to mitigate the impacts of the adverse consequences of COVID-19 on food fortification programs. Next, next slide, please. So like, like, like I already said, uh, you know, both Saskia and Dan made reference to this fact, you know, the biggest containment measure for, for coronavirus is, is around restrictions to movement, restrictions to travel and lockdowns. What that does is that it's, it's, it's affecting supply chains if you look at vitamin and mineral premix, which is what is you, you use to add to, you know, fortified staples or condiments, a lot of it is, is produced in, in only a few countries. So production of vitamin and mineral premix is concentrated in, in a few countries in Asia, predominantly India and China, uh, in, in Europe and North America. If you look at the African continent, for example, only one or two countries have got vitamin and mineral premix production of any scale, and that's Nigeria and South Africa. But even they, themselves also import. So it's essentially an imported commodity. 
Uh, and the issue that programs are having is that premix is either maybe stuck at, at ports of shipment or at ports of receipt. Uh, and that's because there's congestion at those ports, but also because there may be limitations in terms of manpower available or indeed in, in, in being able to get you know, tracking services to deliver the product to, to where it's required. So that's an issue. Uh, and, and that's an issue that we're facing in the short term. In the medium term, there is a concern about the fortified staples themselves. So if you look at some of the staples, they're by and large imported commodities in a number of countries. I think good examples here are wheat uh, as, uh, as a grain itself, but also things like edible oils. So if we look at wheat, uh, Africa pretty much imports around about 80% or so of its wheat requirement. And 40% of it comes from two countries, you know, Russia and Ukraine. Both those countries have imposed export quotas because they are concerned about you know, food security uh, in, in, in domestically. You know, the good thing is globally, there is a lot of wheat that's readily available. So there is a lot of product available for all of us. But the, the policies that various governments adapt can actually make the disruption even worse. So it's not a big issue now, but going forward, it's an issue that we need to be watching very closely within the sector. Uh, Saskia already made a reference to disruption in terms of getting product to the markets, especially for small, medium scale enterprises. So I'm not going to focus a little bit more on that. So next slide, please. The other issues that we're seeing are economic factors. It's fair to say that what COVID-19 has done is to surface issues that were, not, that were already there, but actually what it has done is to exacerbate you know, the, the impact of some of these issues. So for example, we're seeing you know, limitations in forex availability. Like I said, vitamin and mineral premix is essentially an imported commodity. So if you don't have foreign exchange, you're not going to be able to import premix, which means you, you know, fortification doesn't happen. We're also seeing the impact of currency depreciation. Uh, if you look at South Africa, for example, over the last six months, the currency there has depreciated by 30%. Fair to say that it's not only COVID-19, they had a downgrade of their credit rating, but COVID-19 has made a bad situation worse. Worse. You know, what does that mean? It means higher cost of imported material. But also, you know, the other thing that we're seeing is freight costs, and particularly to do with air freight. So some premixes by and large are imported via sea freight, but some are in quantities where sea freight doesn't make sense, so you have to ship them by air. A lot of airlines have been grounded. So I'll give you an example. Two months ago, we were shipping out premix to, uh, to Togo in West Africa. We paid an air freight you know, charge of less than two euros a kilogram. Today, for the same destination, we've got a quotation of over 20 euros a kilogram. Uh, and that's a, an increase of 1,200% over a period of 16 days. So this is having an impact. And where there is taxes for premixes or tariffs, what that does is that you have a double whammy. You have a higher price that you've paid for, but because taxes are also a percentage of the landed cost, you're also ending up to paying you know, higher taxes and tariffs as a result of that. So that's an issue. And, and finally, we also have an issue with, with regard to monitoring and enforcement. We're seeing you know, governments relaxing on enforcement. Next slide, please. So what is it that they can do? As the saying goes, there's a thousand ways to skin a cat, but we can't go to governments with a laundry list of policy recommendations because they're not really gonna do that. So there's four things that we're suggesting that countries or programs can focus on. 
One is around building resilience to supply chains because we know they're going to be impacted. So that can be through strengthening local premix supply systems, through distributorships, or local or more local availability of premix. It could be around prioritization for, for foreign exchange for premix. The second thing that we, you know, we're recommending is there's no need for trade barriers. I think this is time for solidarity. There's a lot of grain and food available for all of us. So the actions of various governments can make a bad situation worse. And the third thing that we recommend is if we have a, if you have a fortification program, this is not the time to let off, maintain it. For those that are in early stages of fortification, it's time to scale up the programs. But for countries that are also distributing food through you know, social safety net programs, it makes sense to include fortified staples. And finally, there's a lot of work around you know, management and coordination that has been disrupted. But as you know, all of you who are on this webinar, we can do a bit more working via online means as opposed to you know, waiting until life comes back to normal. So I will stop there and hand over back to Raju. Thanks. Benjani, thank you for your excellent remarks. Thank you for sharing the work on food fortification, and we'll come back to that. Our last speaker now is uh, Nita Dalmia. Nita is the nutrition specialist of, of maternal nutrition at UNICEF. Nita, we look forward to your remarks. Thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, today, I will present on supplementation in emergencies, a strategy to prevent hidden hunger. Next slide, please. In this presentation, I hope to cover the following three points. Supplementation as a strategy to prevent hidden hunger in routine programs that are currently being affected by the mitigation phase of the COVID-19 pandemic followed by global recommendations for supplementation emergencies, and then some of the specific interim uh, recommendations that have been provided for protecting maternal and child nutrition in the context of COVID-19. Next slide, please. Supplementation is a critical strategy to prevent hidden hunger in routine programs as a means to meet the additional micronutrient needs of vulnerable populations such as young children, school-age children, adolescents, pregnant women, and breastfeeding mothers. And there are currently global recommendations to support its implementation and delivery through diverse systems and platforms, such as the primary healthcare platform for periodic high-dose vitamin A supplementation, daily iron folic acid supplementation, and increasingly multiple micronutrients, deworming and calcium supplements through community systems for daily iron folic acid supplementation and multiple micronutrients, and then through schools as a platform for weekly iron and folic acid supplementation. Next slide, please. As has been previously mentioned, we expect that um, COVID-19 is um, disrupting the nutrition, the delivery of nutrition services for women and children. Um, while women and children are unlikely to um, be uh, affected by the direct impacts of COVID-19, we can already see that there are service disruptions resulting from pandemic mitigation measures such as social distancing and lockdown. Here I show two uh, slides um, through 
two data sets from uh, Bangladesh and India from administrative data showing the impacts of COVID-19 already on ANC services and the receipt of iron folic acid supplements, calcium and deworming. And we anticipate that we'll have additional data showing these kind of declines um, in other countries. Um, there's a recent paper in the Lancet by Roberton and Twal, which um, modeled different scenarios on the uh, indirect effects of COVID-19 on maternal and child mortality in low-income country, which revealed that um, service disruptions and drops in coverage over the next six months could have significant effects on um, increases in child mortality ranging from 250,000 to over a million, and then 12,000 to over 55,000 on mat additional maternal deaths. Next slide, please. Um, there are global recommendations in place to prevent hidden hunger in emergencies that focus on preventive measures, which are more population-based strategies to meet the additional micronutrient requirements and prevent mortality in children and women, such as vitamin A supplementation and multiple micronutrient supplements. And then more therapeutic approaches, which are targeted to individuals and populations which are suffering from micronutrient deficiencies and to respond to measles and uh, diarrhea, such as the use of zinc for, um, and ORS to treat diarrhea. Next slide, please. There are lessons learned and good experiences with supplementation and action in emergencies. And here I will provide a few um, um, illustrations. For instance, um, the use of vitamin A supplementation in Bangladesh in the Rohingya camps, um, which has resulted in high coverage since their inception in uh, 2017. The use of weekly iron and folic supplementation for adolescent girls in Afghanistan, which has resulted in improved hemoglobin levels. The recent use of multiple micronutrient supplements for pregnant women in Syria, which has been scaled up nationwide to all 14 directorates. And then the use of um, therapeutic vitamin C to treat Sudanese youth for scurvy in uh, Kakuma refugee camps in Kenya. Next slide, please. Recently, global guidance has been put into place to support supplementation for women and children in the context of COVID-19. Um, as has been previously mentioned, GABA has introduced guidance for vitamin A supplementation for children for six to 59 months, recommending that context-specific adaptations be made to maintain vitamin A supplementation with routine EPI that mass campaigns be temporarily suspended and that vitamin A supplementation be integrated into disease outbreak efforts such as for measles and that plans already be put into place for intensified catch-up when conditions allow. WFP, FA and UNICEF have provided guidance to identify alternative delivery mechanisms for iron and folic acid supplementation for school-going children and adolescents and integrate them into a strategy for school uh, safe school reopenings. Next slide, please. And then moving on to maternal uh, supplementation. Again, there are guidelines that have been put into place following the broader guidelines put um, by WHO um, to ensure that ANC is continued 
uh, with context-specific service adaptations, that antenatal care includes essential nutrition interventions, including multiple micronutrient supplementation, deworming and calcium for pregnant women with nutrition counseling, that in planning and implementing such programs, a systems approach is useful for pre-positioning supplies, increasing the dispensed amount, e-learning, modifying workflow and redeploying staff, task shifting services closer to communities, the use of home visits, SMS and mobilizing communities, and finally and importantly, ensuring that coverage um, indicators for maternal nutrition are included in routine monitoring and a measurement of micronutrient status. Next slide, please. So to sum up, supplementation is an essential approach for preventing um, hidden hunger, negative pregnancy outcomes, and additional mortality during COVID-19. COVID-19 offers an excellent opportunity to accelerate policy uh, change, introduce new interventions, and simplify and innovate in programming approaches. There are good lessons learned with ongoing and previous emergencies, which can help inform the current response. And a systems approach is useful in planning service delivery, as previously mentioned, and data for monitoring coverage, nutrition status, and evidence generation is imperative. Thank you so much. And then handing over back to Rajul. Nita, thank you. And thank you to you and to Saskia, Dan, and Panjani, as well as John for setting the stage. Our remarkable presentations, very rich uh, room for discussion. And I see a lot of questions are already coming in. At this point, we are moving to the Q&A portion. And as I mentioned earlier, I will ask a reader question at a time and direct it to the relevant speaker or speakers to respond. And in some instances, I will consolidate some of the questions and I hope that is acceptable. So we do have a lot of questions and let me begin with the first question, which actually I will combine two questions and I will direct this to you, Saskia. And this question is, um, uh, initial question is coming in from Oginkule Titilade, who is a Nigerian development worker, who is asking, what are the roles of CSOs in this nutrition response as they're closer to communities? But let me also add, related to that question, another, another one that is uh, coming in on what is the role of the private sector? How can you scale up micronutrient interventions and lobby government support to private sector? Uh, so a combined question for you, Saskia, the role of CSOs and the role of the private sector in the nutrition response to emergencies. Yes, thank you um, uh, for these questions. Um, and I think um, it's clear that this uh, emergency really is an uh, opportunity to step up collaborative efforts that were already pre-existing uh, pre-COVID. And as such, you know, there, there is definitely a role for uh, both uh, civil society organizations and the private sector. I think civil society organizations have played an important role in uh, programs at the community level that um, uh, were um, meant to promote uh, the importance of interventions such as breastfeeding and dietary diversity that can help to improve uh, micronutrient intakes. Um, and the private sector has an important role to play to, uh, to make sure that nutritious products um, and also fortified products uh, and uh, the private agricultural sector biofortified uh, seeds are made available and are accessible and affordable uh, on the markets. And I think in relation to the COVID-19 
uh, crisis in particular, we have heard that trade barriers and uh, within countries uh, disruptions of movements and supply chains are severely disrupting the availability of these uh, of these healthy products uh, for low-income consumers, uh, particularly actually in uh, in urban areas as well. And I think there's a role to play there for the private sector to ensure that these supply chains are maintained and restored. Thank you very much, Saskia. Uh, the next question I will direct to Penjani, and this question comes from Ciara Hogan at UNICEF. Question is, as only South Africa and Nigeria make premix in Africa, is any work ongoing to develop the manufacturing of premix in any other African country? Penjani? So I'm not aware of efforts around local production in other African countries. One of the biggest issues is it's essentially a global market. So economies of scale play a big role, which explains why you find producers in Nigeria and in South Africa. But as I said, even in those countries, it's not a whole range of premixes that are made. They still import premix. A lot of work that I'm aware of that is happening is around how do you build resilient local supply systems? So, for example, there are revolving funds for premix. I can give an example in Tanzania where the Sweet Producers Association, you know, came together. They have, there is a fund and they import on behalf of, of, of the soil industry. Uh, there's a similar scheme in, in Ethiopia where the government agency that's responsible for distributing, you know, medicines and drugs, they also distribute potassium iodide for solidization. But in other contexts, you have, you know, local commercial operators. So I think there is, there's a lot that we can do to strengthen local supply chains beyond uh, local production, but where it makes economic sense and, you know, uh, there is a business case for businesses to invest and produce, yes, it will. Uh, but with a caveat that it's 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 global market, it's highly competitive. So there's going to be a mix of solutions and not you know local production in each and every country. Thank you. Thank you, Panjani. Let me direct the next question to Nita, and this question is coming from Leila in Kenya. And question is, uh, can you confirm the availability of the weekly iron folic acid supplementation? Is the current formulation available? Over to you, Nita. Thank you for the question. Um, yes, the current formulation for weekly iron folic acid supplementation um, is available through UNICEF supply division in our warehouses. Um, um, and so um, there should be no issue with the provision, the supply continuity of that. Thank you very much, Nita. Let me direct the next question to uh, Dan. And uh, uh, Dan Gilligan. And this question is as follows, Dan. Um, one moment, I lost my question, so sorry about that. In your anemia study slide, the control group anemia increased. Is that ethical? Were they provided with EFA tabs or just kept following for change in HB? So, Dan, over to you. So, it's a bit more about the work in the anemia study slide. Sure. Thanks, Rajul, and thanks for the question. Um, what occurred actually, what was going on in, in that study is that uh, the situation, the security situation improved in the course of the study. And so half of the IDP camps in which we were working um, were actually disbanded and, and households were sent home. In, in many cases, some households stayed right there or, or going home simply meant moving to a nearby village where they had originally lived. 
Um, as a result of that, there was some disruption in access to nutritious foods. And so all of the households that had received general food distribution when in the camps received just a one lump sum transfer of about three months supply. But there was a bit of a food crisis as they tried to transition back to agriculture and providing their own foods. So that's what led to this increase, this trend increase in um, in anemia status for children in those households. And uh, that, that was happening within the, the control group and still under support of World Food Program. Uh, but so what we found was that the households that were getting school meals, the school meals were actually not disrupted for very long at all. They were able to move the school feeding programs with the schools and start providing meals again in about three weeks time. So there's very little disruption there. And so what we find is that um, either getting take-home rations or meals at school really turned out to be very protect protective for anemia status. Thanks. Thank you very much, Dan, for that explanation. Um, next question is back to Panjani. Panjani, this question is from Prima Luna with the Indonesian Agency for Agricultural R&D. The question is, what do you think about uh, rice fortification with zinc to prevent stunting in this pandemic? Any thoughts on that, Panjani? I, I, th I think in terms of rice fortification, yes, it's, it's a product that we uh, we promoting in terms of fortification more broadly. I mean, if you look at Asia, three billion people, you know, have rice as their major staple. So it, it is it is a good vehicle to fortify uh, as a way to reach micronutrients to a large number of people. Uh, I, I think the question is more specific around, you know, what sort of micronutrients should be used in terms of, you know, addressing uh, a COVID pandemic. So. Uh, as, as far as we know, uh, and, and the case that we're making is, it, it is important to keep fortification uh, going during the pandemic. People need to consume all the various nutrients you know, that they need. We're not at this stage you know, recommending and isolating specific micronutrients around that. There is a lot of research work that's going on uh, in terms of you know, what's happening around micronutrient malnutrition and COVID pandemic. Uh, a lot of data still needs to become available over the coming months. But in general, it is important to keep fortification up and running. Uh, and in general, again, it's important to make sure that given people are defaulting to staples and staples are a poor source of micronutrients, it is important to keep fortification up and running. But Saskia may also have an additional view on that because I know she's involved in some work doing on assessments uh, regarding micronutrient malnutrition and COVID pandemic. So if you don't mind, Saskia. Sure, thank you, Panjani. Yeah, if, if I may uh, add here, I think, Panjani, you're, you're referring to the Standing for Nutrition Research Consortium that have been bringing together the, the nutrition, econ uh, economic health, uh, and food systems uh, researchers to estimate the combined impacts on, uh, on the COVID uh, pandemic on all forms of malnutrition, including uh, micronutrient malnutrition, dietary diversity, and the availability of uh, nutritious foods, and the link links that that has with other forms of malnutrition such as child stunting and um, uh, child mortality and maternal mortality and then finally also to come up with a set of recommendations to help mitigate uh, these impacts on micronutrient malnutrition and all forms of uh, malnutrition and um, um, and as i said in my presentation biofortification and large-scale food fortification are definitely already proven cost-effective interventions that help to improve micronutrient intakes along with the promotion of diverse diets 
and supplementation programs that target specific vulnerable groups such as multiple micronutrient supplements for pregnant women uh, or for young children, micronutrient powders. And I think that's um, uh, a combination of, of efforts is really required to help uh, uh, restore micronutrient intakes during, at least during the acute phase of the, of the pandemic, but also beyond when the economic crisis is unfortunately thought to last for longer. Thank you. Excellent, Saskia, and excellent, uh, Panjani. Thank you for that response. Let me direct the next question to Nita. And Nita, this question is coming from Mona Damankar with KIT Kit in Amsterdam. And the comment is as follows. Supplementation presupposes that there is consumption and only nutrient deficits need to be addressed. How do we determine how much is needed and by whom? Uh, Nita, over to you. I imagine the question is also, how do we determine how much is needed and by whom during an emergency? But over to you, Nita. Great. Thank you for that question. Um, I think the question supposes that um, that in emergencies that um, one is able to do, um, you know, to individualize and tailor supplementation approaches to um, individual needs and all. I think what we have is some global recommendations um, that are based on um, the continuity of supplementation from routine programming, knowing that these these um, broad um, micronutrients such as vitamin A, iron, folic acid um, deficiencies, multiple micronutrient deficiencies will all um, deteriorate during the emergency program and so by and large the preventive programs are a continuation of these. Um, in addition there are nutrition assessments during emergencies which allow us to look at more targeted approaches such as the one I mentioned in Kenya. Um, it's the observation of um, a skin, um, skin um, issues um, and other uh, symptoms in Kenya that allowed us to uh, come up with more uh, tailored treatment approaches such as the diagnosis of scurvy for those, um, for those individuals. So in emergence, we need both. We need the broad-based population um, preventive supplementation measures, which are a continuation from pre-emergencies. And then there's the additional um, nutrient uh, requirements that might be in place due to uh, disease outbreaks and individual micronutrient deficiencies. Thank you. Thank you, Nita. Thank you. Um, now, Saskia, I will direct the next question to you. Earlier, you had addressed the question about the role of CSOs in private sector. This question comes in from Kiruba Krishnaswamy with the University of Missouri, the FEAST Lab. And she's asking about the, what do you see as the role of higher education and universities in addressing hidden hunger? Over to you, Saskia. So. A very nice question, and I think um, what we have seen uh, in this uh, in this crisis again is that uh, there was an immediate need for uh, for data and for research to address uh, this uh, this issue and to address also the scope of the issue. Uh, I think in micronutrient uh, malnutrition we have a unique situation that in general uh, we have a lack of data, and I think that has been recognized already for several years. Uh, obviously, many countries' surveys do not routinely collect data on micronutrient status, and that is an issue, particularly in situations such as this, when you want preferably to to target uh, to target these interventions. Now, there's there's a lot of reasons for this lack of data. Obviously, it's not easy to collect data on micronutrient status. 
so for higher uh, educations, there's definitely a need to educate students on the issues that, um, uh, that are at play. Um, because we know that these uh, micronutrient deficiencies uh, coexist also in situations where, where people have normal weights or overweights or uh, are obese. Uh, they have lifelong consequences and some of their consequences go across generations. And we really need to make sure that we have novel techniques and, and um, uh, equipment available that can help us to collect uh, the much needed data now, but also beyond this crisis. To, to monitor progress. Thank you. Super. Thank you, Saskia. I wonder if Dan also wishes to comment coming in from a research organization and uh, a comment on the challenges of collecting data in an emergency such as COVID, which doesn't allow fieldwork in the traditional sense. Dan, do you wish to elaborate on that for a moment? Sure. Thanks, Rajul. I appreciate it. I'm uh, happy to follow up on that question. Yeah. So, um, the, you know, the there are a variety of things that we do to try to adapt and, and, you know, IFPRI is a research institute, but working with our university partners, or those university partnerships, both internationally and in local universities are really critical to helping us uh, both understand the context and, and, you know, effectively do our data collection. Um, we have a lot of experience with data collection. We, we do uh, health, so many household surveys a year, and yet this type of disruption uh, really threw us. Uh, we had to sort of put a, a halt on very quickly on more than 25 household surveys that were either ongoing or planned in a very short time uh, just in my division at IFPRI. So one of the things that we did was pivot to um, conducting phone surveys uh, to be able to observe uh, and at least still get some sense of what was happening with regard to the pandemic. Um, that's, it's not possible, of course, to, to assess something like micronutrient status through phone surveys. But what we did was keep very short questionnaires and at least assess some basic measures of food security, of dietary diversity. Those can certainly be done in a phone survey. We include some what I call sentinel questions, which is just uh, qualitative questions with Likert scales, of just uh, has your income increased? And, and if so, is it sort of by a lot or by a little? Um, has food security increased or, or made worse? Um, so questions like that help us to assess the overall status of the situation in a very quick period of time so that we can provide some feedback to government and to other stakeholders about what's going on on the ground. That's a temporary um, approach to try to help provide data and some information in that context um, and can be helpful to UNICEF and other partners who are then on the ground actually uh, programming and they can use some of that information to decide what type of programming is appropriate. Thanks. Thank you for that, Dan. Um, I'm going to combine two questions and direct them to Nita. Uh, Nita, one of the questions is from Aina, which is how do you deliver supplementation to vulnerable groups as we know there aren't community activities during the pandemic? And the second question is coming in from Liu Bai Li with Peking University in China. And how can we use nutrient supplements in the prevention of COVID in the in the elders. So a combination of question of how do we deliver supplementation to vulnerable groups and uh, uh, particularly elders at this time of COVID. Over to you, Nita. Great, um, thank you. That's a really pertinent question. Um, one that many countries are grappling with right now and are in the process of planning for. Um, so actually what's happening right now is that countries are looking to see how they can make the necessary modifications 
um, in their planning and implementation, the service adaptations, and that includes actually um, mobilizing communities um, to be the frontline workers in terms of one, dispelling rumors around the safety of uh, services, trying to get people back to services, um, and also with respect to task shifting uh, services so that uh, services are closer to communities, to mothers. And I'd just like to give an example from Bangladesh in the in Cox's Bazaar where currently um, vitamin A supplementation is being um, planned for the June round. And um, whereas previously this would have been a mass campaign, currently uh, what you have is community workers and health workers that will be going, um, mobilizing communities, and they will be going uh, door to door to supplement uh, with vitamin A. And this will be extended over three to four weeks as opposed to doing it in a concentrated period of a few days. And so this is just one example of the kind of service modifications that is being considered on the ground. Um, in a webinar this Thursday, the India country team will speak about some of the modifications that they are making to their programs in terms of home visits for antenatal care. Um, we also know from the Ebola experiences how important communities are with respect to service delivery. And given the nature of the crisis currently in the mitigation phase, there are strong parallels between these uh, these experiences that will be quite helpful um, in mobilizing communities here on the front line. The second question was around um, nutritional uh, micronutrient opportunities for elderly, and I have to say that um, um, in, in the context of COVID-19. Um, I have not actually seen any specific recommendations for geriatric support on micronutrients um, in COVID-19, um, but that doesn't mean to say that at a clinical level in hospitals that as and when, you know, um, there are certain specific nutrient deficiencies that are seen that this is not provided, but um, I don't feel qualified to really answer that question in, in a broad manner. Sorry about that. No, thank you, Nita, and thank you for raising that uh, we haven't seen much work on that, so perhaps an area for future work. Um, I would like to direct the next two questions, which I will combine, to both uh, Saskia and John McDermott, if he wishes to also comment. And the two questions combined are as follows. One is from Joseph Molnar. He says, could you comment on the role of aquaculture and fish products in augmenting micronutrients? And the second question is anonymous. Can indigenous vegetables and fruits address micronutrients deficiency efficiently? So combined question of aquaculture and fish and of vegetables and uh, fruits. Saskia first, and then if John wishes to come in also. Thank you. Uh, yes, thank you for these questions. Um, I think uh, with regard to aquaculture and fish products, yeah, we know that fish products and seafoods uh, can deliver important uh, micronutrients, uh, for instance, zinc. Uh, uh, they also deliver um, um, essential omega-3 fatty acids uh, that are that are required. So in that regard, again, you know, they they form a part of a of a uh, diverse diet, and and uh, in order to to make sure that people consume all the uh, and and vulnerable groups consume all the micronutrients they need for healthy uh, lives, it's important to promote. A diverse diet that includes um, that should include fish products. So in that regard, yes, definitely they can uh, uh, can deliver that. 
in addition to the essential proteins that they and amino, amino acids that they provide. Indigenous fruits and vegetables also have a role to play. It has been always a challenge to include indigenous fruits and vegetables into the recommendations uh, for a number of uh, reasons. And the most important one is that there is a lot of variation in, uh, in their micronutrient content. Um, and also that the bioavailability uh, of certain micronutrients uh, from fruits and vegetables um, is um, uh, from these indigenous fruits and vegetables is not yet being fully estimated. But they have definitely also a role in the uh, promotion of diverse diets. It should definitely be included to, uh, to, to include indigenous fruits and vegetables there as well. Okay. Thank you. John, did you wish to comment? Yeah, just briefly. So um, it's clear that the, the kind of micronutrient and even other nutritional benefits, uh, particularly from fish, but also from indigenous fruits and vegetables are important. Um, what I think we're going to see in the food system disruption is that some kind of shorter local supply chains are going to be favored. And so I think this is quite important where we're seeing severe lockdown and disruptions, uh, that there's going to be a bit of a reorganization of supply chains. And so getting those, even, even the primary producers uh, of those services may be eating more of those things until we get rearrangement of supply chains to get them to other consumers. So, uh, yeah, it'll, there'll be some interesting adjustments in the short term that we're seeing. Thank you, John. Uh, Panjani, I will direct the next question to you. And this comes from Asheka Mahfouz. Physical monitoring by government agencies are disrupted due to COVID-19. How can we ensure that products are adequately fortified by millers? Question for you, Panjani. So, I, I mean, I, I guess that's a point that I was, I was, I was trying to make that it, regardless of everything else that's going on, especially where the law is mandatory that food producers need to fortify, you know, governments need to ensure that fortification is still happening, that they are able to track that fortification is happening. They can track by having their inspectors going out and take samples and testing to make sure that the food is poor fortified. But there's also other ways and means to do this uh, during the, the COVID pandemic. So, for example, they can look at, they can request data in terms of volume of production that, you know, industries have done, the amount of premix that they have, and, 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 and request, you know, the uh, uh, documents to validate that they are importing premix that they're using, and they can go and audit, uh, you know, at a later stage. So I, th I think there's ways in terms of doing things physically, it's a bit of a challenge in this period, but how much of what is done physically can we be able to move online? So putting in systems where you collect data from organizations and being able to validate that data by providing supporting documents and evidence in terms of what they're doing is also helpful during this period. Thanks. Thank you, Benjani. Let me stay with you for a moment for one more question. And this is from Iris Bernardo in the Philippines. Are fortified emergency meals available everywhere? Those that do not need cooking or add, add, adding water, ready to eat meals. Um, any comments on availability of fortified emergency meals? So are, 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 are they talking about meals that are ready to eat? Or yes, that's my fortified? impression. That's my impression though, because the person says those that do not need uh, heating or adding water. 
So, uh, I mean, I think UNICEF can comment on that, but in, in broad terms, yes, there are, you know, fortified, specialized, nutritious foods. Uh, there would be specialized in the sense that there are those that target, for example, people with moderate acute malnutrition, but more broadly, they are also ready to use uh, complementary foods, which are targeted at, you know, children, uh, and these are fortified pests that they can add to their porridge or they can eat. So, yes, these products are available. Uh, they are mostly institutional type products. Uh, I don't see a lot of ready-made retail type products in various markets, but more broadly from on the institutional markets, yes, they are uh, available, but they tend to be targeted uh, nutritious foods. Thank you so much. Nita, did you wish to also comment on this? No, I think actually Pinjani did a great job in answering that question. Um, um, but I, I can actually maybe just add one point here that um, there are um, supplementary, uh, specialized supplementary foods um, which are ready to use um, for pregnant women um, that are available through supply division. Um, and, um, and those provide the additional micronutrients uh, along the lines that are in the global recommendations, but along with that, the additional energy that's required um, for these um, vulnerable groups. Um, yeah, I'll just start. Thank you, Nita. Um, I'd like to direct the next question to Dan. And Dan, this question comes from Alice Kowalski, uh, who is a PhD candidate in nutrition and health sciences in Atlanta. For social safety net programs, it sounds like you recommend leveraging existing systems rather than setting up new ones. What is the role of the global nutrition community in supporting this? Is it one of advocacy to make sure the right things get included? in revisions to social safety net policies? Or is it one of synthesizing the evidence and making it available to policymakers? Dan, any perspectives from your side? Yeah, thanks, Rajul. That's a great question. Um, um, a very appropriate question for essentially how to use social safety nets and, and the knowledge around them to scale during a, uh, a, a crisis like the pandemic. Um, many so standing safety net systems are designed to be shock responsive, we call it. So a good example is Ethiopia's Productive Safety Net Program, um, which during a severe drought in 2015, um, so that's a very large national program. Not every country has something like that, but, but, but there it's a, it's a robust program. They were able to scale the, the level of uh, benefits provided to people that had already been targeted for the program to increase those and reaching 85% of people that were normally beneficiaries to give them additional transfers. But then in addition to that, so that, that program has about 8 million beneficiaries. In addition to that, they actually use the infrastructure that's there, the community targeting um, committees and, and that type of infrastructure to further identify vulnerable households. And they reached an, an additional 3 million households with added transfers during um, a drought that led to a big spike in food prices and a serious food crisis, which was largely avoided through this um, robust response. So, you know, it's not just working with existing programs, but where you have them in place and the infrastructure around them, um, usually that allows you to move much more quickly. Um, certainly, other things need to be tried. And where there's gaps in social protection and, and underlying safety nets, then, then we have to use other methods, call in stakeholders and, and other help. Um, Community-based systems are, are wonderful. As uh, Nita mentioned, they can be very useful to support 
um, any type of intervention around uh, information around uh, social distancing and hand washing, but also delivery when possible. Doing that safely, of course, in the pandemic is really critical, but, um, but methods are being developed and tested and tried all over the world. Um, you, you know, it, we can't sit on our hands. And so uh, a, a number of governments and their partners are moving forward trying to, to do those things safely. Thanks. Thank you very much, um, uh, Dan. Um, let me ask the next question to Saskia. Saskia, this question is coming in from Klaus. It says, the meaning of hidden hunger is only known to a small number of experts. What is done to make it broadly known, to give it the political attention it deserves? Um, any any uh, perspectives from your side about how to have hidden hunger ma made more broadly known for political attention? Saskia, over to yes. you. Thank you, Rajul, and thank you, Klaus, for this uh, for this question. Obviously, that's uh, what uh, the Micronutrient Forum is working on, uh, as you know, on a on a you know on a daily basis, and particularly now in in COVID, to make sure that uh, micronutrient nutrition is doesn't remain hidden, um, and that people understand that uh, although we talk about hidden hunger, um, it's actually a condition that we know, even with you know um, that we know if is affecting an estimated 2 billion uh, people uh, around the world. And these are people across um, all the countries, across all different weight categories, as I've just said. It's also, uh, uh, it's also an issue in people that are, have overweight or obesity. And it has a lot of um, social capital consequences that can last for generations because some of these nutrients are affecting uh, the development of uh, organs and the brains, you know, from the, from the fetus that have, uh, uh, have shown to have implications later on. So we are very keen on keeping that on the agenda. And in fact, again, this, this crisis provides an opportunity to do so because it is so clear that it is affecting all forms of malnutrition uh, and, and in, uh, including micronutrient malnutrition. So there will be a couple of events uh, coming up and in the next uh, uh, half year, uh, government, donor governments and country governments will uh, work on their budgets for 2021 that will of course uh, include a response to this crisis um, and uh, also the nutrition, the nutrition for Growth Summit and there will be a World Food Systems Summit next year uh, and the preparations for the commitments that are made during these global events are also starting up in uh, the fall. So these um, uh, activities that we have referred to that are now trying to estimate the impact of this crisis on micronutrient malnutrition and also to come up with a set of recommendations that we align behind as the food systems and nutrition community are important to feed into these, uh, these uh, consultations. Thank you. Thank you, Saskia. Let me take the last two or three questions uh, very briefly before we wrap up. Uh, Panjani, I will direct this question to you. You had mentioned that some countries appear to have relaxed monitoring and enforcement of fortification, which suggests that legislation for fortification exists in various countries. Could you tell us quickly how many countries require fortification by law and how many more would benefit from mandatory fortification programs? Over to you, Panjani. Yes, so, so there are at least 84 countries that require fortification of grains. So that's a combination of either wheat, uh, maize, or, or rice. So any of those three, there's, you know, uh, one or more of those uh, 84 countries require by law that you fortify. 
When it comes to edible oils, approximately 30 countries by law require you to fortify edible oils with either vitamin A or vitamin A and D. And for salt, there's 128 countries globally where by law you need to fortify salt, uh, but up to 140 uh, fortify, uh, the others being fortifying on a voluntary basis. So broadly, that's the status now. How many more countries require fortification? It sort of varies based on the food product. But a few months ago, you know, ourselves uh, in collaboration with, uh, you know, various partners from UNICEF, from World Food Program, Food Fortification Initiative, Nutrition International, Iodine Global Network, and Helen Keller International, we did a review of all countries looking at what the micronutrient deficiencies are there, what sort of products are being consumed, and therefore, what products could you fortify? And we identified up to 84 countries with various combinations that are not currently fortifying or fortifying voluntarily who could you know, fortify and achieve a public health intervention. So that's the that's current status, and, and, and that's what the potential is going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Panjani, for that. I'll direct the last question to Dan and uh, ask him to be brief in his response. Dan, the question is, if markets for nutritious foods like fruits and vegetables or animal source foods are collapsing during the pandemic, would you recommend providing food rations rather than cash transfers? Uh, thanks, Rajul. Yeah, so, uh, so food rations are preferred when food prices are rising steeply. So giving cash, cash erodes quickly if there's a very high inflation in food prices. Or when um, high quality nutritious foods or food at all cannot be easily accessed through markets. So usually these are in um, emergency situations or for very remote populations um, that have also been affected by the pandemic. In these cases, it is appropriate to provide food rations. The, the rations um, should, whenever possible, be multiple micronutrient fortified, um, as that helps to prevent against micronutrient deficiencies, um, such as iron deficiency, anemia, vitamin A deficiency, and others. Um, the IDP camps of northern Uganda, and the example that I gave, are, are a good example there, where markets were fully not functioning, so fortified food rations were provided. Thank you. Dan, thank you. Colleagues, I'm going to wrap us up, but in a moment. And I just want to say and acknowledge so many other people who have asked questions that we simply did not have the time to come to. So thank you to Julia Rutich from Kenya, to Mirza Khaled, to Snigda Misra, Dr. Mahesh, Tom Omute, Amy Sherry Barian, Rosie from Indonesia, Anandi Pavi, Cecilia Akuin, Rosie Afrial. Uh, Jaffa, Sugirta Rani, Ramesh Dashpande, uh, and uh, uh, Veronica Vanjiru Kirogo, and many others. Really, I wish that we could take all of your questions and comments, but we ran out of time. What a great session this was. So I'd like, as we wrap up, I'd like to call on our speakers uh, to briefly give us their final takeaway messages, their 20 seconds of what, what do they want you to remember from this incredible session. And I'll go in reverse order and I will ask our speakers to hand off to each other. And we'll go in the following order. We'll begin with Nita, and then Panjani, and then Dan Gilligan and Saskia. So Nita, over to you. Thank you for that. Um, so I'd like to conclude by just saying that COVID-19 is markedly impacting women and children's access to essential nutrition services. Maintaining the essential nutrition services uh, using supplementation um, and um, to deliver uh, vitamin A uh, for young children 
iron and folic acid and multiple micronutrients for uh, pregnant women and breastfeeding uh, mothers is an important approach to preventing hidden hunger and the additional mortality that we may be able to uh, see from the mitigation phase of COVID-19 during the pandemic. Over to you, Panjami. Uh, thanks, thanks, Nita. So my message is basically to, to countries and it's threefold. Uh, you, know, you know, number one, for countries who have, you know, taxes and duties on vitamin and mineral premises, I think now is the time to remove them, more so within the context of COVID pandemic. It doesn't make sense to tax a product that's there for public health, you know, purposes. Uh, and, and for the big, uh, you know, grain or food exporters, I think this is not the time for 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 uh, for export quotas or export bans. I think it's a time for solidarity. Lockdowns may be a way to contain the pandemic, but you know, for for us to defeat malnutrition, we need to keep markets open and and let food you know flow across the borders. And, and, and finally, for countries that are fortifying, this is not the time to let off. We need to maintain the momentum. For those that are in the early stages of fortification, it's the time to scale up. And for those that provide foods, you know, through social safety dates, it, it is important that they, they, they include fortified staples uh, in, in their food distribution basket. So I will stop there and hand over to Dan. Uh, yes, thanks, Manjani. Um, so research shows that nutrition-sensitive social safety nets can be an effective strategy to improve diet quality and protect against micronutrient deficiencies in, emergency, in emergencies, including in this pandemic. Policymakers should make sure to prioritize the needs of women beneficiaries and provide them with nutrition information when possible. Food rations should be micronutrient fortified, but whenever possible, keep beneficiaries safely linked to markets through cash transfers to promote availability and access to nutrient-rich foods such as biofortified foods and other sources of, uh, of high-quality foods and markets. Thanks. Over to you, Saskia. Thank you, Dan. So yes, uh, what we have seen here is that if we are not careful, uh, the COVID-19 crisis can set us back uh, several uh, years in our efforts to eliminate, eliminate all forms of malnutrition and micronutrient malnutrition in particular, uh, but it doesn't have to. And I think this crisis also presents a unique opportunity for the global nutrition and food systems community uh, to join forces and stand together for nutrition uh, so to ensure that we continue to make progress uh, towards eliminating all forms of malnutrition by 2030. Um, and with this, I would like to hand back to you, Raju. I would like to thank all the uh, other speakers. To Dan, thank you for, to Dan and to Benjani and Nita for uh, presenting here. So on behalf of the Mike Newton's Forum, if I may, and also to thank you, Raju, for an excellent uh, moderation of, uh, of this panel and to all the people that participated remote because it is really encouraging to see the interest in this uh, in this topic and the passion that you all that we all share to help prevent that this crisis will turn into a bigger crisis for uh, global uh, micronutrient malnutrition thank you excellent thank you thank you everyone around the world watching this event and thank you to the micronutrient forum for joining hands with the free to co-organize this we look forward to seeing all of you back again on Thursday, June 11, for the seminar on social safety nets and COVID-19. Thank you, everyone. Have a good day and stay well and safe. Thank you.